Mark your calendars for our annual Oktoberfest next month, Saturday, October 28th from 4 p.m. to 8 p.m. It's a neighborhood party with inflatables, food trucks, balloon animals, lawn games, and a huge trunk or treat. Be sure to donate a bag of candy and sign up to serve one hour to help make this event a success. Thanks for joining us this evening, and as always, we hope you enjoy the service. Well, to extend a welcome again, welcome to City Life. Um, Anthony hit on it, that video hit on it, but since registration ends on Monday, and this is the last time you'll ever hear about it on a mic, I don't feel bad. Uh, just one more time, make that men's retreat a priority. I mean, I don't think any of us would hesitate to say that this church has a purpose, that this church is called to make an impact in this region, that the church is called to make an impact in the mid-Atlantic, but at the same time, we're called to make an impact here in Suffolk and Chesapeake and where God's put us. And that happens. The church is a strong church when we've got strong homes within it, strong families within it. So that's why we do ladies' brunches like just happened. That's why we do the men's retreat like is about to happen, because we want to sow into fathers and mothers and husbands and wives and those homes that make up the church. Because we know if somebody goes to one of these uh, retreats and gets rocked or there's a transformation or a revelation that there's just a domino effect where the family becomes stronger, the home becomes stronger, the church becomes stronger, and then we can have that impact. So the enemy knows that. He would love for you to find an excuse to not go. So maybe Friday is tough. Try to find a way. You know, there's signups out there for all kinds of different things, but bottom line, Bare minimum, Thursday night is free 99. It's free, right? It's at the Thursday, Thursday night at the Newport News Campus at NRBC. Invite some folks at least, very least make it out to that. It's going to be the men of the church. Come on, coming together to lift holy hands like it says in scripture, to worship, to hear testimonies, stories, and to hear from Pastor Fred as well. So uh, speaking of Newport News, though, thank you, Chris House. How many of you guys enjoy worship led by Chris? It was amazing. And then I wasn't here last week, and I was actually in Newport News, and uh, many of you heard from Pastor Fred as he preached here. I heard it was amazing. If you missed that and you feel you missed out, or if you loved it and you're like, man, I wish I could hear from Fred more often, either group, you can go to citylifeva.com. Man, his podcasts are up there every week. There's no reason to not check those out, especially if you've got to commute like I do. Just throw that up, citylifeva.com, and all the podcasts are there, you know. We have two campuses, one church, two locations, and... There's not a whole lot of rivalry there, not so much, although I would say after last weekend when the men of this campus went down the Upper Gauley in West Virginia, if there was like a, a Class 5 Rapids race, we'd smoke them. We just need the guide, Zach, or we'll die. But our guide was awesome. But when I use the word rivalry, say the word rivalry, what comes to mind? Cowboys, Redskins. Rivalries. What's that? Marvel in D.C. <laughs> Competition. Rebel Alliance in the Empire. <laughs> Very nice. Any of the rivalries? Sibling rivalry? Yeah. Alabama-Auburn. Roll Tide, right? Yeah, Flow Tide, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Sonic and Shadow. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Sega and Nintendo, right, rivalry, talking kids and video games, right? But we've been talking about rivalries. We've mentioned a couple sports ones, but the Green Bay Packers and the Chicago Bears played on Thursday night, 
and they played for the 195th time. Now, we've talked about a lot of significant history uh, from this pulpit. This is some history you probably will never ask for, but they played for the 195th time on Thursday night. They've been playing each other since 1921, and what's remarkable is going into Thursday night, the, the series over almost a century was tied at 94 wins for one team, 94 for the other, and six ties. And Green Bay won because they are a far superior team right now, and for the first time since, like, 1932, they've taken the series lead. Now, why do I know all this useless information? Well, because I know a lot of useless information. But also, my, my father is a huge Chicago Bears fan. He grew up outside of Illinois. He tried to raise me as a Bears fan. I, I have so many pictures as a little boy wearing a Bears shirt. But thankfully, it never caught on because they're miserable. They haven't had a quarterback since, like, before I was born. But that's a huge divide on my dad's side of the family because when he moved to Chicago, that group of the family was moving down from Wisconsin. So there was always back and forth on that side of the family uh, with the, the Packers fans and the Bears fans. And vacation when I was a kid wasn't a cruise. It wasn't anything like that. It was let's drive 16 hours in the Dodge Caravan to go up to visit grandma. And, and her house was like Switzerland. I remember she always had pint glasses with the Green Bay logo on it. She had pint glasses with the Bears logo on it. So her, her house was like a safe zone. And, and the, the, the blood that they all shared in the, the white family, my father's last name, right, that blood kept it good-natured, kept it humorous, uh, harmonious. But you take blood out of the equation for some of the rivalries, and, and it can get ugly. You can draw blood like this fight outside of a Packers-Bears game. Like, that's what it can look like. And we joke about sports rivalries, and we have in this series where we're talking about long division, but we live in a society with so many lines in the sand of us and them, the in-groups and the out-groups, as we've talked about, the psychology, the quote-unquote good guys and the bad guys. All these lines in the sands, right? Blue and red, liberal, conservative, uh, black lives, blue lives, all of these lines in the sand. We've been in this series talking about long division because it's a division problem we've had for a long time. And in the first sermon, we went back and looked at truly how long we have had this issue and why. We looked at how there's this inclination as humans to separate societies into dichotomies of us and them and how sociologically and, and, and psychologically that can both be a benefit and it can truly hurt our society. And we looked at how since Cain, we've bought into the same lie and deception that Cain bought into where he thought, man, my issue is with Abel. My issue is with my brother. My issue is with that man over there. And he didn't recognize that his true issue was with God. We talked about how until we get vertical reconciliation right with God, we'll never see the horizontal reconciliation we need in the world. And then two weeks ago, we talked about the how. We talked about the why. Two weeks ago, we talked about the how. How do we end this cycle of division? How do we end this cycle of violence that gets sparked by division? And we looked at Matthew 5, verses 38 through 48. Where Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he gives us this blueprint to get rid of just our impulse for retaliation and replace it with the ministry of reconciliation. And tonight, I, I kind of want to continue this conversation of the how. Okay, so how do we engage our culture and actually turn the table in our culture when there's so much division? And I want to start by looking at two ways we try that maybe don't work so well, and then look at what Jesus did and how he actually incorporated both. And in one corner, you've got the table flipper, the person that loves to flip tables, the uh, culture warrior. 
all about championing truth. And to champion truth, you have to win some fights and flip some tables, right? And this person engages the culture to condemn it. They fight, but often, and this is where it goes wrong, with a focus on flesh and blood, right? Our enemy does not wear flesh and blood, but the culture warrior, because of that, the table flipper quickly becomes offensive. It becomes uh, unpersuasive, confusing. We may flip tables, but we never see any tables truly turn. You know, we, we rep a God who, whose kindness leads us to repentance. So powerful that the, the Bible chooses the word kindness leads people to repentance. If we keep throwing truth out there without any kindness, right, are they going to be led to repentance? But in the other corner, you've got the response to the table flipper, and, and that's the person that hosts an open table. Right? We take grace in one hand, and this genuinely works. But if we take grace in one hand and leave truth behind us, and, and we pull out a chair to welcome every new idea, welcome every every uh, so-called truth, even untruths to the table, then we won't see change either. It seems loving until you realize that at the end of your encounter, at the end of your time at the table, that that person is the same distance from God as when they just started because you haven't called them to reconcile with any truth, such as we all need Jesus. We're all broken. We need redemption, and we need grace. And, And sometimes we just make people comfortable in this life without preparing them for eternity. Come on, we host open tables, but again, we never turn tables. And both of these can be done well, right? Because the world clearly needs truth. We live in a world where preference and choice have been pushed. Well, they've pushed morality to the side, where the wide road and the wide gate seem welcoming. But we we see in the word that scripture comes through the narrow gate and on the narrow road. In a culture that, that it, it welcomes tolerance and this idea of accepting everything, sometimes you might be called narrow-minded, but sometimes that's just a reflection that, hey, I'm actually living according to the truth I've been given because truth is narrow. You know, Ravi Zacharias has a, quote, a great quote where he says, truth cannot be sacrificed at the altar of pretended tolerance. Real tolerance is deference to all ideas, not indifference to the truth. And we see Jesus in his conversation with Pilate at the end of the Gospels. He based his mission and identity on the authority of truth. He says in John 18, 37, he says, you're right in saying that I am king. He's talking to Pontius Pilate. He says, in fact, for this reason I was born. And for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So we hear that and think, yeah, I want to be on the side of truth. But the world also clearly needs grace because a world that has a loose grip on morality, it's like driving a car with a loose grip on the wheel. Somebody is going to get hurt. People get hurt. Hurt people, hurt people, broken people, break things, and the hurt just is a cycle. And we need grace, not just for the hurt that's inflicted on us, but come on, none of us are perfect. We need grace for the guilt and shame that comes from when we've inflicted pain on others. There's a great Philip Yancey quote, another one of my favorite authors. He says, I rejected the church for a time because I found so little grace there. I returned because I found grace nowhere else. Come on, the church should be a place that's defined by God's grace and his mercy. Jesus, when he was talking to Nicodemus about his mission, at the beginning of his public ministry, he, he, again, he set the foundation of his ministry, not on judgment, but on grace. He says in John 3, 16, right, which we know so well, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. 
that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And the verse right after that says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. We see truth and we see grace. And John chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 ties this all together and puts a bow on it when it says that out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I say all this to say that Jesus championed truth. Jesus was entirely intolerant of untruth, of distortions of truth, of deceptions of the enemy. And Jesus flipped tables in his ministry, both literally in the temple and then figuratively in some of his uh, conversations and confrontations with the religious leaders of his day. But Jesus also, he cherished people. And he tolerated and even showed compassion for their brokenness. We see Jesus again and again and again inviting outsiders and outcasts and, quote, unquote, those people to the table with him. Enemies and sinners and spending time with them. He was tolerant of people. And I want to focus on this balance that Jesus walked in with grace and truth and tolerance and intolerance because he had such an impact in his culture. Right, an impact that wasn't just felt at that time, but we still feel it today. And again, as I open with, hopefully you believe the church is here to have an impact. If, if you don't believe that, I don't know why you're here tonight. The church is called to have an impact in this region and in our world, but we won't turn tables in our society and in our culture until we understand when to flip tables and when to host open tables. It, to phrase it another way, we, we won't turn tables in our society until we learn and can discern between when to be tolerant and when to be intolerant because we see that there's a time for both in the gospels. We're going to look at Luke 19 where we see both in the gospel of Luke and there are times for both. But first let's define tolerance because you might hear about a hundred definitions if you just ask somebody, hey what is tolerance? Biblically tolerance means I may not approve of your behavior but I can love you and respect you and treat you decently as another human being because I tolerate you. But tolerance has morphed into this idea where we must approve of everything or fear being labeled intolerant. You might ask somebody, and that might be what they give you, where if you don't approve of someone's behavior, you either fear or hate them. The word phobia gets thrown around so quickly in our society. But the very word tolerance means I may not approve, but I can still love, I can still respect, I can still see the image of God in you and value you in that way. And we see it's a balance that Jesus walked. He walked so well. He had grace and tolerance for people, but he showed intolerance for the lies of the enemy. He showed intolerance to sin to the point he went to the cross. <laughs> but we live in a culture, again, that has, it has deified this idea of tolerance and it's demonized intolerance. And we'll show how that's fed into division in a bit, but let's first look at how it ties into this verse right here, right? Grace demands tolerance, patience, long-suffering, uh, putting yourself in somebody else's shoes, understanding, empathy. Grace demands these things. However, truth demands intolerance. Truth doesn't change. Truth doesn't care about your feelings. Truth is truth. And you could just as easily, you could say, you could plug in charity and clarity. Grace requires charity. Truth requires clarity. Uh, to look at another verse, 1 Timothy 1.7, it says, God has not given us a spirit of fearfulness, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. Some translations say a sound mind. Now, now, you see love. You could talk about charity and grace. 
that we're to extend in love. And then you talk about a sound mind, it speaks to clarity. It speaks to sound judgment would speak to truth. And we'll walk in power and have an impact to the extent that we walk with both grace and truth, charity and clarity. Not only did Jesus walk this out well, but when he sent out his disciples early in the Gospels, he says in Matthew 10, 16, he instructs them, hey, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. What does that speak to? Well, certainly a balancing act. A serpent's sharpness, a dove's gentleness. Again, clarity, walking hand in hand with charity. An intolerance for untruth in one hand, but a tolerance for people in the other where you're fierce with the error, but you can be gentle with the person who is erring. And he tells us, or he would tell us, to go in the same way. And again, I want to look at Luke chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 45. We're going to look at how Jesus exemplified both of these for us. And I want to start with with the flipping of tables, a story we're probably familiar with. It's in Luke chapter 19, verses 45 through 46. I'm just going to read these verses, and it says, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people selling animals for sacrifices. And he said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. So we'll examine this, but, but this month there was a, a hearing for a judicial candidate. And the person presiding over that hearing said about the candidate that you have a long history of believing that your religious beliefs should prevail. When you read your speeches, the conclusion one draws is that the dogma lives loudly within you. And that's of concern. See, dogma is principles laying down truth. It points to truth. God's word is truth. And for a culture that has, has deified tolerance, this idea of accepting everything is truth, that's of concern. And I don't know the details. I didn't get, get into what the qualifications of the person being nominated were or, or any of that. But I simply heard that soundbite and said, man, at the end of my life, I hope people would look at my life and say, man, the dogma lived loudly in their life, where if Darth Vader was making an assessment, he would say the dogma lives loudly in him, right? The dogma lived loudly in the Apostle Paul. The dogma lived loudly in the life of Mother Teresa. The dogma lived loudly in Martin Luther King Jr.'s life. The dogma lived loudly in Jesus' life. Why? Because dogma and doctrine and truth, it all matters. Because a verse that's repeated in the Bible that's probably one of the most key Verses in the Bible is obedience is greater than sacrifice. What are we called to obey? The truth that God has given us, the the truth of God's word. Truth matters. But the raw reality, again, is that facts don't care about feelings. Truth is truth. And we live in a society that's all about pursuing good feelings and happiness above all else. We live in what's called a post-truth society. We've covered this before at the, the turn of the year. We're in 2016, the Oxford Dictionary, called post-truth, the word of the year. What it is defined as is relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. So post in this word doesn't mean after, as we might expect it to, as much as just a, a, a place where truth is 
no longer as relevant as it was. Loud doctrine or a life with loud doctrine doesn't exactly mesh with this post-truth culture. Because who cares about the facts as long as I feel good? Who cares about truth as long as I'm happy? You know, I saw a video recently. Maybe you've seen it. It's about five minutes long, so I like to to talk, so I wasn't going to show a five-minute video here. But uh, he went on to the University of Washington campus. And the video was about identity, but it speaks so much to what we're talking about because he's in these conversations with all these students, and he's going back and forth, and he gets to the point in the conversation about two or three minutes in where he's like, if I told you, mind you, he looks like me, five foot nine, Caucasian guy, blonde hair. He's like, if I told you I was a, a Chinese woman, would you tell me I'm wrong? And 100% of them said no. If you feel that way, that's the deal, good for you, right? But what's funny is he just kept going, and he was like, all right, if I said I was a six foot five inch Chinese woman, would you tell me I'm wrong? Most of them were like, no, nah, I wouldn't. And then, you know, as you saw some people like, yeah, actually, you're not six foot five. But it, it shouldn't be hard to tell somebody who looks like me if I came up to you and said I'm a, a, a six foot five inch Chinese woman to be like, you're wrong, right? But it is. Why? Because, again, we've deified tolerance as this universal acceptance, and we've demonized intolerance or telling anybody they're wrong because we don't want to seem fearful or hateful. There was uh, just this, this girl being honest. I love that she was honest. She says, I feel like that's not my place as another human to say someone is wrong or to draw lines or boundaries. This is where we're at. Nobody these days wants intolerant truth or loud doctrine. You know, God is good all the time. All the time God is good until he tells us, like the Bible does, that he's the source of truth. And there's ramifications of that. And we have to live accountable to that. And truth demands obedience. You know, the attempt of the enemy from the beginning has been to spark disobedience by making us question truth and redefine truth from the ploy of the serpent when he said, well, did God really say? Right? Is that really what he meant? Is that really his truth? We have to realize that, that, that a post-truth society, as, as it's defined, is prime real estate. It's just a playground for the, the quote-unquote father of lies to sow lies. And his goal is not unity. Right? Jesus' prayer, as we've talked about in John 17, was for unity. But he would love to drive as many wedges in our culture as possible. You look at Jesus' culture in Luke chapter 19, the religious arena had been divided between Jews and Gentiles, insiders and outsiders. The religious arena in Jesus' day had largely lost its charity because it had lost the clarity of God's vision and his purpose for his people and his temple that was handed down by Isaiah. You know, we so often, we hear the story about Jesus flipping tables or we see it in the movies. And I watched many different accounts this week on, on YouTube of the different movies in this scene. And so often it focuses on the, the exchange of monies and the commerce that was going on. The camera will zoom in on hands as they hand money back and forth. Or they'll show somebody counting off change to somebody else who had just bought something to offer to God. And we make it about that often. But I would argue that based on his words and based on his life's action, it was as much about the space those tables were taking up and what it was preventing. Because the primary issue, as he quotes Isaiah 56, was that just how out of sync their vision for the temple, their operation of the temple was with that kingdom vision that Isaiah had prophesied. He quotes Isaiah 56 when he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. And the greater context of Isaiah 
56, it talks about how outsiders and foreigners would, would come to God, seek God, and be gathered with his people. But Jesus approached what was known as the court of the Gentiles, right? These outsiders, these foreigners, and the place designed for them to congregate and worship had been hijacked and replaced. The Jewish insiders, they had used it for their own gain. They'd used it for their own profit. They had taken up the space, and there was no room for the Gentiles. There was no room for the outsiders to come in and worship God. Really, this was racism cloaked in religion. And Jesus shows himself entirely intolerant of it. His heart was for people. And the ideas that replaced community with commerce and the untruths that that was rooted in, they, they weren't tolerated by Jesus. God had outlined his intentions for the temple and how he wanted to be worshipped. And the Israelites instead, they, they did what they pleased. Now, there's a whole rabbit trail, sermon-length thought about how our bodies are temples. He's told us how to obey him and worship him through them, but we do what we please. But instead, I want to turn in my Bible one page back to the beginning of Luke 19. Because it shows how Jesus showed intolerance for untruth here, but he shows tolerance for people. And it's the story of Zacchaeus. It's the story of Zacchaeus. It starts in verse 1. You've heard probably, if you grew up in Sunday school, the song about Zacchaeus, the wee little man, uh, climbed up a sycamore tree. So we're going to start in verse 5. That's where we're at. It says, when Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. You would love for somebody to just walk up to you in the middle of the stranger. Well, maybe he knew who Jesus was, but still be like, hey, I'm eating dinner at your spot. Save me a seat. Says Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor. Lord, and if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Adam, excuse me, Abraham, (laughs) for the son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. Again, last week, we looked at that passage from Matthew 5, talking about how can we stop the cycle of division and the violence it sparked. And we looked at that command Jesus gives in, in Matthew 5 to love our enemies to replace this pattern of retaliation with a pattern of reconciliation. And how do we properly walk that out and turn the tables? We have to understand, again, when to flip tables and when to host open tables. Because the quote-unquote people in this passage who disapprove of Jesus eating with Nicodemus were intolerant towards Nicodemus because he was other. He was sinner. He was outsider, outcast. Why did Jesus tolerate him and people like him again and again, and again. It's because he realized that intolerance applies to truth, not people. Tolerance applies to people, not untruth. Again, intolerance applies to truth, but not people. And and tolerance applies to people, but not untruth, and not lies and deception. Paul would write to the church in Philippi, and at the start of chapter 4, he makes a plea for people to live in harmony and unity, And immediately following, he makes this statement in verse 5. He says, let your gentle spirit be known to all people. But I love the amplified version because it'll pull from the Greek, it'll pull from the Hebrew, depending on what testament, and it'll give you other words that could be filled in that blank. And it says, 
let your gentle spirit or your tolerance be known to all people. When you see Jesus flipping tables in the temple, you may think, wait, what? I can't compute. What is, how do you even connect those dots? But the key word in this verse is people. People. Jesus drew a hard line against distortions of the truth, untruths, and the lies of the enemy. But people, he loved people. He showed grace to people. He tolerated sinners. He met them where they had asked. Now, did he accept everything they did? No. But he still accepted, quote, unquote, sinners, quote, unquote, enemies, Romans, tax collectors. Jesus, he tells us to love our enemies. But when you can't discern between your enemies and their ideas, what to tolerate and what to be intolerant of, you can end up hating people and embracing truths you shouldn't. That's what had happened to the Pharisees. They become intolerant of those people and embrace different perversions of Old Testament truth. Again, Paul says here, let your tolerance be known to all people. And you look at Luke. This is the last personal encounter that Jesus has before he goes to Jerusalem to fulfill his mission. Come on, we believe that Luke was inspired when he wrote down this gospel and put it in the order he did. And I love that this is the last personal exchange Jesus has before he goes to Jerusalem. And I love verse 10. Some theologians say it's the most key verse in all of the gospels. Luke 19, verse 10, where Jesus says the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus came on a rescue mission. How? How did he seek and save? Because we're called to the same mission, so we should imitate it, right? Well, one method was to share an open table, eating and drinking. You know, there are, are three different verses in the Gospels about how Jesus came. The first we just read, Luke 19.10, he came to seek and save the lost. Mark 10.45 says he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And then finally, in Luke 3, or excuse me, 7.34, says he came eating and drinking. Different than the other two, right? But in its entirety, it says the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And you say here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This is how Jesus would often seek and save, inviting somebody to an open table. I've shared this quote before in a different sermon, but there's a New Testament scholar, Scott Barchi, who said, it will be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the cultures of the Mediterranean basin in the first century of our era. Mealtimes were far more than occasions for individuals to consume nourishment. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremonially rich symbol of friendship, intimacy, and unity. Thus, betrayal or unfaithfulness toward anyone with whom one shared a table was viewed as particularly reprehensible. On the other hand, when persons were estranged, a meal invitation opened the way to reconciliation. We realize that when Jesus shared the table, with all these people, and anytime Jesus shared a table with anyone, he, was, he wasn't just doing lunch or dinner. He was doing theology, doing the theology of reconciliation. He was doing the theology of grace. And we look at the condition of Christ's culture, but we should also look at the condition of our culture. We're just a couple decades, a few handful of decades removed from when whites and blacks couldn't share the same bathroom, water fountain, or dinner table, bar at restaurants. You know, sit-ins were a common form of protest during the civil rights movement, saying, I'm demanding an open table. Crying for a country to no longer tolerate the untruths of racism and recognizing this wrongful intolerance 
that was being shown to people based on the color of their skin. You know, Martin Luther King, this voice of the civil rights movement that we often point to, said that the most segregated time in America is Sunday service or maybe Saturday night service if you go to City Life, right? But I could argue if we all had dinner at the same time in America that really that is probably the most segregated time in America. We don't get to choose who we go to church with often. Anybody can go through those doors. We don't turn anybody away. (laughs) Newsflash. But we get to choose who we have dinner with. We get to choose who's invited there. And we might say that we're intolerant of things like racism, but how often do we sit at homogenous tables, operate from homogenous relationships? And we ask questions like, man, why is the country so divided? But is our life bridging the gap in any way? Have we opened our table to anybody who looks different, thinks different, votes different, behaves different than us? Or do our tables look as segregated as the ones during and before the civil rights movement? You know, this quote from that book says, a meal invitation opened the way to reconciliation. How can you make a statement that powerful based on just a shared meal? Well, proximity creates awareness. And as you become aware, you begin to understand. Understanding creates empathy, and it's empathy that holds the door open for unity. And reconciliation, it's not just about literal tables. I'm talking water cooler conversations, lunch breaks, runs for coffee, our conversations at our kids' soccer game. Do they look like open table opportunities for bridges to be built? And it's also not just about racial reconciliation. We are called in 2 Corinthians to be ambassadors of reconciliation. And again, as we shared, until we get reconciliation with God right, We're never going to see the reconciliation we need around us because there's heart transformation that has to take place. Now, how often, though, do our interactions intersect at tables with, again, unbelievers, people who don't go to our church? Jesus was known, we just saw in this verse, as the friend of sinners. That speaks to, like, a depth of relationship. They weren't just people he had crossed in the street. He knew their address because he'd eaten at their table, right? He knew the name of their wife and their kids because he'd shared a table with them. He was a friend of sinners, not just an acquaintance of sinners. And that doesn't mean he agreed with their every lifestyle decision, right? But that lack of approval of their lifestyle didn't keep him from respecting them, loving them, and interacting with them. In the same way, followers of Christ and non-Christians, we're going to disagree on a lot what to do with our money, what to do with our bodies, what to do with the idea of marriage, right? So many different things. We won't agree because we don't agree. But rather than fighting to agree, coming with truth but no grace and kindness, or pretending to agree, coming with grace but no truth, can we just accept the fact that maybe we have different worldviews and just connect, begin evangelizing? You know, John 17, we hit on it before. It's Jesus' prayer for unity, and he He prays that there would be such perfect unity in the church that the world would know that he was sent by God and that he loved them as much as he loved us. But he goes on in John 17. This is his long prayer. It's powerful. If you've never read it, absolutely, as your homework, go home and read John 17 because he's praying for you. It's powerful. It says in John 17, sanctify them in the truth. Again, this is the amplified version. Set them apart for your purposes. Make them holy. Your word is truth. Just as you commissioned and sent me into the world, I also have commissioned and sent them, believers, into the world. For their sake, I sanctify myself to do your will, so that they also may be sanctified, set apart, dedicated, and made holy in your truth. We see in this passage multiple times this idea of being set apart. But but so often we, we wrongfully assume that set apart means separate. 
That set apart means at a distance. But we see that God doesn't make us set apart so that we can post up in a bunker and draw lines in the sand or create us and them out there. No, no, again, Jesus gives us this pattern of us for them. As he was sent, he sends us. You know, what the Bible says about being set apart or when the Bible talks about being separate, it's not talking about geography. It's talking about our condition of our heart. Being different doesn't demand distance. We can be both set apart and we can be sent. So don't take being set apart or separate as a command to be isolated. On the other hand, we're we're called to infiltrate, called to have an impact. And without contact, there's there's never impact. But we got to do it understanding that we need tolerance in one hand for people and intolerance for the lies of the enemy. Recognizing that sometimes we flip tables, confronting lies and distortion, but recognizing also our call to host open tables. Inviting people that aren't like us, don't think like us, don't believe like us, don't look like us to fellowship. May we not, like our culture, deify this tolerance that accepts all things and demonize intolerance, but stand on the truth of God's word always. God's word commands us, the two greatest commands, love God and love people. If you stand on the truth of God's word, you will have grace and love for people. Man, may our church always be an open table. That in the course of our church in the years to come, that we'd share pews with, with people that struggle with porn, with broken marriages, cohabitating before marriage, whatever it might be. And then there will be self-righteous people who look down on those people. <laughs> But may we have an open table. Is there a call to be transformed and a a holy standard? Absolutely. But again, without contact, there's never impact. And sometimes it's that participation, having a place to belong where people are transformed and they experience transformation. But there, there will be no impact in this sanctuary if we don't have an impact with our lives. Living with grace and truth, living with charity and clarity, with tolerance for people and intolerance for untruth. Because, again, we'll walk in power when we walk in both love and a sound mind, charity and clarity. And we'll turn tables when we understand when to flip them and when to host people and invite people to the table. You know, if I could just have the worship team come up. We've talked heavily about reconciliation tonight. Talked heavily about reconciliation in this series. And often we talk about reconciliation out there. Grace and truth for out there. But it's good news because there's grace and truth for, for here, our hearts. Again, we can address all the systemic issues in the world. And we might even experience a, a lull, a, a brief pause from the conflict. But until we deal with the sin issues in our hearts and the conflict in our hearts, that will spill over again and again. And, and that's why it's so powerful that grace and truth is not just for the world at large, the world as a whole. It's for me and it's for you. Because here's what happens. If I lean too hard into truth and I let go of God's grace, I'll just become wrecked by guilt. Become focused on my flaws rather than Christ's sacrifice. Where you get to the point where you can't forgive yourself. If you get to that point where you can't embrace God's forgiveness because you think you're too broken, you're, you're, you're not serving God. You're serving a, a lowercase God, yourself your own self-righteousness, and not laying a hold of God's grace that he offers us daily. We'll never be at peace if we live like that. If we embrace truth without grace because we can never measure up to God's holiness. I don't care if you've been following Christ for a year, 20 years. 
We'll never arrive in this life. We'll strive for it, but we always need God's grace as we chase after his truth. But you know, on the other side of the coin, if, if we lean into grace, but we let go of truth, we just get caught in cycles, mountaintops and valleys, peaks and pits, because grace recognizes your worth in spite of mistakes, but letting go of your hold on truth means you never do truly confront the issues in your heart, the sin and the brokenness in your life. And we'll never be at peace if we embrace grace without truth because we'll never truly change. You know, if I were to apply truth without grace, I would forever feel the shame of not measuring up. But if I apply grace at the cost of truth, I'll forever return to shame because we, I never will change to fit God's truth. But come on, as we go back into worship, may we remember Jesus that came in grace and truth that, that, that is big enough for both. No matter where we are tonight, whether we feel like we're doing great or feel like we're in the pits, whether we feel like we've done a great job with reaching out and, and impacting people or feel like we've done a terrible job or we've done a great job in a marriage or a terrible job, a great job leading our family or a terrible job, whatever it might be, we remember that you went to the cross, you died for us to extend grace. That means we can be raw and honest before you. We don't have to pretend like we've got it together, but because of the cross, we can simply say, God, I'm here, and I need your grace again. God, I pray that the truth of your word, however, would take root in our lives. God, that as we've opened up the gates and opened up the door of our heart and invited you to come in and speak, God, I pray that you would convict. God, it might be something that isn't even related to what was preached on tonight, but your Holy Spirit is here, and it's moving. And God, as we draw near to you, you draw near to us, God. And I just ask that you would be at work in every heart, every mind. God, you invite us to come, and you don't just kind of sit back in your rocking chair and wait. You're like the, the father of the prodigal son who ran out to meet him. As soon as the sun was on the horizon, he ran out to meet him. God, I pray that we would have the same picture of you tonight. God, as we open the door and as we seek you and as we come to worship you one last time, God, I just pray that you would give us the image of a good father. God, one that invites us into relationship. God, that extends grace again. God, that disciplines us with truth but does it in love. And God, I just pray that we would remember the cross, remember the sacrifice of Jesus. And just as we confess at the end of worship, you're wonderful. God, we want to worship you tonight. If everybody could stand, we're going to go back in and, and just close praising Jesus for what he's done. Done to reconcile us vertically with God, reconcile those around us with God, and reconcile us one to another. But Jesus is going to take, again, transformation. It's going to take conviction and change in us, God. So let us start with us tonight as we worship. <laughs>